Good morning. I want to welcome you to Brian Bible Church. We are uh, looking at the story of Yeshua's conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. And many commentators use this as an illustration on how to do evangelism, which I think is a little silly, you know, to use this as an illustration because you can't start talking to somebody and tell them things no one knows about them, you know, like Yeshua does with this woman. So it doesn't work out too good as a story on, you know, really how to do evangelism. But this is a story of fulfilled prophecy. This story takes place at a well. And we talked in the past that the Tanakh, in the Tanakh, we see a man finding a bride at a well three times. So the imagery here is that Yeshua, the divine bridegroom, has come to court his covenant bride, Samaria, as symbolized by the woman and as promised by Hosea the prophet. So we have seen that Yeshua is heading north. He leaves Jerusalem. He goes into Judea. Then he leaves Judea and he heads into Samaria. And verse 4 says, he had to pass through Samaria. The word had in this text is the Greek word day. It is often translated must in the fourth gospel. And I think the must here is a prophetic must. He's going through Samaria. He is, as he's doing this, he's fulfilling prophecy. This is a divine intention in our Lord passing through Samaria. And that's why he had to pass through Samaria. He had to meet this unnamed, Samaritan woman. And I think it's significant that she doesn't have a name in this story. Because I think she kind of represents Samaria. Now, despite taboos, Yeshua opens a dialogue with the Samaritan woman at the well. And in verse 14 and 15, it says, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. So the woman said to him, Sir... Give me this water. Why, look at why she wants the water. So that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. <laughs> She's not getting it at all, okay? She understands this verse as helping her to save a trip to get water. You know, okay, I won't have to come here anymore. That'll save me some work. That'll be really good. So what's going to happen now is Yeshua takes the conversation in a different direction. To help her realize that she had some spiritual needs that only he could meet. So he said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Now go and call. This is a present active imperative followed by an aorist active imperative. These are commands. Go, call your husband. Now why does he tell her to go call her husband? Well, I think he's trying to get her attention here. All right. He knows what's going on with this woman. He knows her situation. He knows she doesn't have a husband, but he wants to show her her spiritual need. I want to wake this woman up. I want her to see the situation she's in. Now, he may have also told her to go call a husband because it was culturally proper. You know, if he's going to give her something valuable, which he's offering to her, her husband needed to be present when he gave it to her. This was necessary to avoid any misunderstanding as about the reason for the gift in that culture. Now... Let me just say here that the Greek word translated husband in this passage is andros, which literally means adult male. In the Greek, there is no specific word for husband. Andros appears 250 times in the original New Testament. It's translated into English as man or men 155 times. 
and husbands 50 times. So some have questioned his translation here as husband. Maybe it's just man. Go call your man. Well, I think based on the context here, the husband is a good translation. That's the idea we're, that he's trying to get at here is the idea of her husband. So the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Yeshua said to her, you've correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Now, he hasn't been able to get her attention so far. Okay? She's like, oh yeah, give me some water so I don't have to come here anymore. Well, now he tells her to go get her husband. And then she responds, how do you think she would have felt talking to this perfect stranger and he knows all about her? He knows how many husbands she's had. He knows the man she's living with is not her husband. And there's no Facebook for him to learn this stuff, okay? So she's like, how do you know this, you know? I'm sure she's got to be thinking, who is this man? Now let me ask you, how did Yeshua know all this stuff about the woman? Well, many would say he's omniscient, right? He's omniscient. Well, if you were paying attention earlier in this study, I don't think it's because of his omniscience. I don't think that's the issue here. In his incarnation, Yeshua functioned as a man. Remember, he's an example. We're not omniscient. We can't count on that to do things. He is here and he is living as a man. And I believe from his own will, he didn't use his divine attributes to benefit himself. Now, he didn't surrender him. He couldn't do that. But he voluntarily restricted these attributes in keeping with the Father's will. He gave up any independent exercise of his divine attributes in living among men with their human limitations. So he would become truly man. See, dependence is a necessary characteristic of real humanity. And Christ lived in dependence on the Holy Spirit in everything that he did. Matthew 12, 28 says, But if I cast out demons through my omnipotence, no, that's not what he says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Luke 4, 14, And Yeshua returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. In Matthew 4, when you see the temptations of Christ, those temptations were related to his deity and the kenosis. His humanity longed for what his deity could have provided, but he didn't exercise the prerogatives of deity, but he was dependent upon the Father, and he trusted in the Father. Remember, he is our example. If he's operating in his deity here, then not really a good example to us, because none of us can do that. So Yeshua tells her, because the Spirit is giving him, you know, what may be called the word of knowledge. The apostles, some of the apostles had this ability. Yeshua tells her that she is technically correct when she says, I have no husband. She doesn't have a husband. And he says, you've had five, as a matter of fact. And whom you now have is not your husband. So she's had five husbands. And this guy she's living with is not, she's not married to us. So at a minimum, they're not married. At worst, she's actually sleeping with, he, she's sleeping with some other woman's husband. So that Yeshua would know about all this woman's husband suddenly confronted her with the question, who is this? Who is this man? 
You know, he's more than just some Jew. His insight into her past and her present relationship would cause this woman to affirm, this guy must be a prophet. See, he's taking it to a level now. He's pushing her to go to the spiritual level. Now, rabbinic opinion disapproved more than three marriages and divorces. Okay, they didn't like if you had more than three. Although it was legally permissible. And there was no body of religious opinion at the time that approved what we call a common law marriage. All right? Now, we really don't know enough about the practices of first century Samaritans, but if they had the same rules as the Jews did, then the woman's life was an immoral life. I mean, Samaritans accepted the Pentateuch, all right? And Exodus 20 is in the Pentateuch, says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And there's plenty in the Pentateuch about the penalty for this being death. So, you know, most people say this woman was an immoral woman and he's confronting her in her immorality. Well, also in those days, husbands divorced wives, but wives didn't divorce husbands. If you were divorced, it's because your husband did it. All right. Now, there were exceptions where the woman could actually persuade her husband by paying him or whatever to divorce her. In other words, I got to get rid of this guy, you know. Would you please divorce me? Here's a bunch of money. You know, get out of my life. Um, Or she'd work out some other way to get rid of her husband. But um, here's a woman who has managed to get five divorces, assuming that none of the husbands died. Now, some of them could have died. Very unlikely that all five of them died. And if they did, I would not be interested in being number six. Okay? (laughs) All right? That just doesn't seem to work out too well. All right? But let's say this woman was married five times and divorced five times. Then five men had divorced her. This woman was put away five times. Think about how she must have felt about herself. And the man she's with now is not her husband. So she's like, you know, probably not feeling all that spiritual, all that great of a person. Five men. I mean, that's a lot of men to say, I can't handle this woman. Get rid of her. All right. Now, I think it's interesting here that when the Lord tells her this stuff, that she doesn't challenge him. She doesn't get mad. She doesn't argue. She doesn't run off screaming. She realizes this guy is something different. He's someone special. Notice what Yeshua says to her. He says, the one you now have is not your husband. Let me ask you something. What does this tell us about marriage? It tells us that living together doesn't make a marriage. If living together made a marriage, then he would say, well, that's your new husband now, right? So what is it that makes a marriage? What does it? Well, Genesis 2.24 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage involves a joining to one's mate. The word for join here is devak. It means to cling, to remain close, to adhere, to be glued to firmly. The idea is to have a bond that cannot be broken. And the bond here is referring to a covenant. See, the thing that makes a marriage is the covenant. It amounts to each partner committing to his or her life to the other person. It's a pledge to emphasize one's mate as paramount beyond all other relationships, forsaking all others, remaining faithful to them. Marriage also does not involve the state. Biblical marriage. You know, you don't need the state's approval to be married. 
And if you get the state's approval to do something that's not a marriage, it's still not a marriage. Okay? Our states now are approving same-sex marriage, which is an oxymoron. That doesn't happen. And also to be married, you don't have to have a ceremony. It's a matter of a covenant relationship. What I see from Scripture is a biblical marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman consummated by the sexual act. So this lady's living with this guy that's not her husband. Now, I think that what we see here about this woman and her five husbands, I think this is a true story. Please understand that. I think there's a real woman at a real well talking to Yeshua. They're having this conversation. But I also think it goes much deeper. And I want to show you a little bit of this. Uh, I mean, this is just the way Lazarus writes. There's always stories beneath the story. And since earlier times, Christian scholars have found a lot of symbolism in the reference to husbands in this passage here. See, in biblical times, a legal wife, in a covenant union with a man, called her husband Lord. I really like that. That's an awesome biblical custom, okay? (laughs) Which in the Hebrew is the word Adon, okay? Adon, Lord. But a concubine who was considered to be property, not actually a wife, she called her husband Lord or Master, but she would use the Canaanite word for Lord or Master, which was Baal. Hang on to that, okay? We're going to get some scripture here in a little bit. So Sarah could call Abraham Adon, Lord, but Hagar, the slave wife, would call him Baal. Now, the word Baal had a dual meaning. Baal meant Lord or Master, but Baal also was used of the gods. Each of the Canaanite gods were called Baal, along with the city name or the place. For example, Baal of Peor. In Numbers 25.1, he was the Baal of the plains of Peor and Moab. Gods were regional Back then, okay, and so each god had his own territory, and that's how it worked. Now, Christian scholars have seen a play on words here in the dual meaning of the word husband. In this passage, referring to the five husbands and the five Baals of the pagan peoples who were ancestors to the Samaritans. Now, remember what we learned in the Samaritan history, all right, when they were taken captive by Assyria... They took them out, most of them, and they brought in five different groups. It's just interesting that there happens to be five, and this lady happens to have five husbands. Remember Yahweh and Christ both symbolically unite with the church in the imagery of a bridegroom to the covenant bride. So maybe more than just commenting on the woman's life here, Yeshua could be referring to the five different groups of people who became the Samaritans, and who brought the worship of each of their principal Baals, their gods, with them. And then they adopted the worship of Yahweh. Yeshua could be saying that Samaria has five different gods. And the god they worship now is not their own, because although they adopted the worship of Yahweh, they had reinterpreted the covenant in their own idea of worship. Therefore, their covenant was not legitimate. They had even rewritten passages in the Torah to reflect those changes. For example, they designated the place of worship not as Jerusalem, but as Mount Gerizim. So they just 
you know, they invented their own. So Yeshua could be saying that the woman, like the people of Samaria, had five different lords, five different gods, five different Baals, and he, meaning himself, who was talking to her at the time, Yeshua, who was there, is not your own. In other words, he's God, but he is not their God. Considering the use of double meaning words in this fourth gospel, Lazarus could be using this symbolic meanings here. So he's going deep. And it's interesting that this stuff really fits together. Josephus, writing in the first century, records the ancestors of the Samaritans that they brought in five principal Balaam, Baals. They brought in their own gods. So here Samaria had their five gods. And Yeshua is standing and the one you're with now is not your God. But he should be. So there's, you know... You take that for what it's worth, but I think there's uh, I think there's much more here than we see on the surface. Now, this connection between Yeshua's message to the woman of Samaria and the husband Baal references and the Samaria-Israel relationship to Yahweh is prophesied in the book of Hosea. God had given Hosea the prophecy of the day when Israel would again become the bride of Yahweh. So Yahweh is promising the restoration of of Israel. Look at Hosea 2, 16 and 17. It says, And in that day, declares Yahweh, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. That's a beautiful prophecy that fits really well into this text in Samaria. You know, he's removing those balls and he is becoming their God. Now, this text goes on to say, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know Yahweh. Three times he talks about the betrothal here. Yeshua's witness to this woman is an amazing fulfillment of this prophecy, which was written after the destruction of Israel in the 8th century B.C. And as I said earlier, this, this story is taking place at a well. And we see through the Tanakh, this is where brides were courted. So the imagery here is that Yeshua, the divine bridegroom, has come to court his covenant bride, Samaria. Now the woman says to him in response to this, and this is almost hilarious once you get all this, she says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Yeah, something's going on here. I mean, he knows all this stuff about her. He knows how many husbands she's had. And like I said, I think that's all real, but I think there's a story behind it. She goes, I, I think you're a prophet. You know, her response is good. Again, she's not mad. She's not upset about all the, her sinful past being exposed. She realizes he's a prophet. Now, the word prophet was used to refer to a wide range of gifted people. But... We're talking to a Samaritan here, and that's really important. Because to Samaritan, the word prophet had a special meaning. The early church father, Origen, writing in the 2nd century AD, notes that the Samaritans held as canonical only the books of Moses. We know that, that the Pentateuch, that was all they held. All right? So they didn't have the histories, they didn't have the books of the prophets in their Bible. And since the Samaritans only accepted the Pentateuch as their canon of inspired scripture, Moses was the only prophet for them. They saw no other prophet because they understood the words of Deuteronomy 34 to be absolute. Deuteronomy 34.10 says, since, the, since that time, 
No prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom Yahweh knew face to face. See, they understood these words absolute in force, and, and they said there was no other prophet other than Moses until the coming of the prophet predicted in Deuteronomy 18. Yahweh said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, like Moses. He's talking to Moses. And I'll put my word in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So they knew a prophet was coming, but all they accepted was Moses. See, this was a second Moses to them. They called him Tahab, which was their word for Messiah. They saw this as a coming Messiah. So for her to speak of Yeshua as a prophet was thus to move into the area of messianic speculation. She's realizing he really is something. You know, if there cannot be another prophet between the first prophet Moses and the second Moses, then to call Yeshua a prophet is virtually to call him the prophet. Are you the prophet? Are you the one that has been predicted? And so she goes into this. Our fathers worship in this mountain. And you people say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, so many people see this as she's trying to change the subject. Well, let's not talk about my immorality, all my husband's immorality. Let me, let's get on some religious topic. I don't think that's it at all. I think she's being awakened spiritually and she's perceiving that Yeshua might be the promised prophet. So she tests him by asking him the most important question they have about worship. See, the Samaritans want to know where. You guys say over here, we say over here. Who's right? This is important to them. Where, where is the place where we're supposed to worship? She wanted to settle that. So she figures, hey, this is the prophet. Maybe he can answer this question about where we have to go to worship. And she probably thought he was going to say Samaria, you know. So she's like, hey, let me get this straight so I can tell my people we're doing it all right. Well, the Torah said, but you shall not seek Yahweh at the place which Yahweh your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. All right, so you're going to seek the Lord at the place that he chooses. Well, this verse prompted the Samaritans to look in the Pentateuch itself and discover where is this place. Well, they noted that Shechem, overlooked by Mount Gerizim, was the first place that Abraham built an altar once he entered the Promised Land, Genesis 12. It was on Mount Gerizim that the blessings were to be shouted to the covenant community once they entered the Promised Land. Deuteronomy 11. And in the Samaritan Bible, both Exodus 20, 17 and Deuteronomy 5, 21, the Ten Commandments are followed by words very similar to those found in Deuteronomy 27, thus effectively tying the Decalogue itself to Mount Gerizim. So they're just taking everything and tied to Mount Gerizim. This is obviously the place to worship. They produce what's called the Samaritan Pentateuch. This is what you do, people, when you want to worship in a different way. You create your own Bible that says you're supposed to do what you want to do. All right? So they created the Samaritan Pentateuch in which the book of Deuteronomy would specifically ordain Mount Gerizim as a place for true worship. How convenient. But listen, they were really trying to live. I mean, that's all they had was the first five books. And so they tried to get everything they could get out of those five books to give them their direction. But now the Jews, of course, accepting the whole Tanakh as authoritative, saw that Yahweh had commanded to build his temple in Jerusalem. See, that had no effect on them because they didn't care about that. But look at 1 Kings 14. Now, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king 
And he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. Now notice what it says about Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the city which Yahweh had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. All right? This is the place where Yahweh put his name. He established the center of worship for his people at Jerusalem. And they had to travel there three times a year. All men to worship the ones who didn't live there. Now when the ten northern tribes of Israel broke away from the divided kingdom, they established worship on Mount Gerizim. Now we got two centers of worship. We already talked about all that, all right? So this woman wants to know, where do I go to worship? So Yeshua said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You see what he's telling her? That question doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where. He says, believe me, this is pistuo with a dative. This is not an invitation to trust him. He's not saying you need to believe in me as your savior. He, what he's saying is, I'm telling you the truth here. All right, I'm telling you the truth. There's an hour coming. Hour is from the Greek word horah. And when unqualified in the fourth gospel, it points to the hour of Yeshua's cross, his resurrection, his exaltation, or the events related to Yeshua's passion and exaltation. Talking about that time when he will be the sacrifice for sin. And he's saying here, I'm telling you, the you here is plural, meaning the Samaritans, not just this woman. He's not just telling her, the Samaritans in general. He says, you won't worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now that's really amazing for a Jew to say. Okay? He says, the day is coming when Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of David, the place with the temple of Yahweh, will no longer be the focus of true worship. Now, Lazarus' audience, by this point, shouldn't be too surprised by these words because Yeshua had already said back in chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So in other words, he'd already said that he himself was the new temple. He was the new meeting place with Yahweh. The temple was about to pass away as the focal point of worship. And what would be in its place? A new mountain? No. A new city? No. A new building? No. A new person, the sun. Now, not long after this, a few decades later, we know that the Romans came in, started in AD 66, and finally they destroyed the city of Jerusalem in AD 70. They crushed it. They didn't leave one stone upon another. And then the Roman powers went into the area of Samaria, and they arrived at Mount Gerizim, and historical accounts tell us they took out their swords there, and they slaughtered thousands of Samaritans on Mount Gerizim, and they brought that worship to an end. So they didn't worship at Jerusalem, they didn't worship at Mount Gerizim, that ended at 87. Now if you can remember back to one of the studies we did in the first chapter of this gospel, Yeshua indicated to Nathanael that with his coming, things were going to change. And that's what's happening here, alright? We see it in John 151, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is a reference to Genesis 28 and Jacob's dream. Nathaniel wouldn't have missed the implications of Yeshua's statement here. Just as Yahweh stood before Jacob and made him a promise, so does Yahweh now stand before Nathaniel. The oath Yeshua makes to Nathaniel is that the Son of Man is now the heavenly stairway of Jacob's vision. He's the center of God's glory and the point of contact between heaven and earth. Men and God will no longer meet in certain designated places, but in a certain designated 
person, the promised Messiah. He is now the stairway to heaven. He's the mediator between heaven and earth. And so it was pointless to continue this debate about where we're going to worship. It doesn't matter. He was the person through whom men must worship God. He says in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jew. You worship. Again, you here is plural. You Samaritans. This is Yeshua saying that Samaritan worship is ignorant. That's not politically correct, I know. But he says, you don't know what you're doing. You don't. It's foolish to say that every religion is equal and valid and we shouldn't judge other people for what they believe. Yeshua bluntly states the Samaritans worship what they didn't know. They were spiritually ignorant and they were wrong. Okay? And he tells her that. The Samaritans worshipped the God they did not really know. And the reason was the rejection of most of his revelation. They sought to worship God on their own way, independent of Judaism, and that is wrong. They were dead wrong. Because he says salvation is from the Jews. Now what does this mean? Well, the word from here, I think from is a good translation, the way the New American puts it here, could also mean out of. Yeshua is telling her that the Savior will arise from the Jewish people. And Israel has been the axis of divine revelation. It is through Israel that truth has come from Yahweh. So they don't, the Samaritans don't have it. And seeking salvation apart from the Jews is wrong because they're the only ones that had the revelation. If Samaritans wanted to be saved, they had to forsake their system of religion and turn to a salvation that was from the Jews. Paul put it this way in Romans. Who are Israelites? To whom belongs the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. Paul says Christ came to the Jewish people. He came from the Jewish people. He is their Messiah. Now the antecedent of whom here is not the fathers, but it's the Israelites. They had the covenants. They had the law. They had the temple. Christ was born a Jew, and in Him, all of God's promises to Israel reached their consummation. Yeshua took on flesh, and He entered into the old age in order to inaugurate a new age. Again, in verse 23, He says, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. Now, the Pillar New Testament commentary commenting on this verse states this. There is an advance on verse 21. Not only is the time coming, but it has come. This oxymoron is a powerful way of asserting not only that the period of worship in spirit and in truth is about to come and awaits only the drawing of the hour, i.e. Yeshua's death, resurrection, and exaltation, but also that this period of true worship is already proleptically present in the person and ministry of Yeshua before the cross. In other words, he's saying the hour is now, but he hadn't come to the cross, but it was so certain, that's what proleptically means. They're, they're advancing themselves into something that hasn't really happened yet, but they're treating it like it is because it's so certain. All right? 
He says, this worship can take place only in and through Him. He is the true temple. He is the resurrection and the life. The passion and exaltation of Yeshua constitute the turning point upon which the gift of the Holy Spirit depends. But that salvation historical turning point is possible only because of who Yeshua is. Precisely for that reason, the hour is not only coming, but has also now come. You get that? It's come because it's all about Yeshua and it is certain. He says, an hour is coming and now is. This statement reflects the tension which existed between the two comings of Messiah. The two Jewish ages are overlapped. A new age is starting. The age to come is beginning. The age of the Spirit is present, yet they were still living under the old age because the two overlapped for 40 years until AD 70 when the old was put away. He says, you need to worship. We'll worship the Father and Spirit and truth. What does this mean? Let me tell you. Oh my word. There are, there are stuff written, <laughs> volumes and volumes written on what worship, true worship is. You know, books on true worship, seminaries on true worship. What is true worship? Well, the Greek text has here one preposition, in, that governs both the nouns, spirit and truth. And it's linked by the conjunction and. This means that Yeshua is describing one characteristic with two nouns. It's not two separate characteristics of worship. It's not like you have to worship in spirit and you also have to worship in truth. That's not what he's saying here. It's the spirit of truth. If you want to make it literal, you have to worship the Father in the spirit of truth. Generally speaking, Judaism was a worship of the letter. And not the Spirit. And he's saying, you have to worship in the Spirit of truth. See, the Spirit here is the Holy Spirit. And the contrast between worship at Jerusalem or Gerizim and worship in Spirit and truth reflects Lazaristic's, again, dual way of thinking here. It's an example of earthly things in contrast to heavenly things. In the cleansing of the temple, Lazarus presented Yeshua as the true temple. Now, Brown notes this. Here it is the spirit that enlivens the worship and replaces worship at the temple. Again, the contrast between Yeshua and Judaism is obvious. We see this all through. He, this is how you used to do it. It's not that way anymore, all right? Judaism's understanding of worship was confined to containers. And so they argued about which temple, which container was appropriate for worship. The followers of Yeshua understood Yeshua to be the true temple and it and it is the Spirit which Yeshua offers that makes for true worship. We have to worship the Father in spirit of truth. Now, Yeshua is saying, basically here, there's no more temples. You know, the lady saying, where do we go to work? That doesn't even matter anymore. It doesn't matter at all. Where are we supposed to find God? Well, He's saying here, listen, there's no more priesthood. There's no more altars. There's no more sacrifices. There's no more vestments. There's no more incense. There's no more candles. All of that is over. But you know what's so strange about this? We, we, this is Yeshua's words so clear. But most of the church today is a carryover from the Old Covenant. And most of the things you see going on in church today, they're just brought in from the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, there was a separate priestly class. Well, today we have a man-made clergy separate from the people with certain titles 
and supposedly certain authority. In the Old Covenant, the priests wore particular garments. They wore a garment to carry out the ceremonies on the Day of Atonement and other garments for other days. And today in our churches, in Protestant churches and in Catholic churches, we have individuals wearing these robes and collars that set them apart like the Most High Holy Reverend so-and-so. That is a carryover from Judaism. In the Old Covenant, they had an earthly sanctuary. And what do we call our meeting rooms? The sanctuary. Man, I hate that. This is the sanctuary, okay? We are the sanctuary. We are the dwelling place of God. Not some building, not some room. You know, in the Bible, a building is never called a church. And we've just gotten into that habit. You know, we'll go to the church. The church is not there. It's just a building, okay? Unless the church gathers, then the church is there. Many people today associate worship primarily with going to a building somewhere. As the Jews did going to Jerusalem. Well, Yeshua clarified that true worship transcends any, any particular time, any particular place. We should and we can worship 24-7. Every activity we do, anything and everything we do is to be done out of love and service for Him. It's all worship. Because we worship in the person of the Son. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. You know, today there's no true worship apart from faith in Yeshua the Christ. That's it. That's what he's saying here. That's true worship. It is only through Christ. You can't worship any other way, any other place. You can't do it any way you want. I don't care how many cathedrals you go to and how many times you bow or crawl across glass. You cannot worship the Father unless you worship through the Son. The only way you can worship. Look at John 8, 19. They were saying to him, where's your father? Yeshua answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father. You cannot worship God apart from Christ. He goes on to tell the Jews 5.23. And so all will honor the son, even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. We got people saying, well, I worship God, I just don't like the idea of Christ. I don't believe, you know, well, you can't go to the Father apart from through the Son. There's no way to do it. Spirit and truth. You must, listen, you have to be born of the Spirit in order to worship God. And you have to come to Him through truth. That is through Yeshua who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You must worship in the Spirit of truth. Which means worshiping through Yeshua. And then he says in verse 24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now the King James, and obviously Young's has, that David was reading from, has God is a spirit. The New American Standard, the NIV have God is spirit. Now in the Greek text there's no definite article A. But it's legitimate to supply one, as is often true in similar anarthrous constructions. However, the absence of the article between deliberate, often deliberately stresses the character of the noun. And I think that seems to be how Yeshua's meant it here. That's his intention here. God is spirit. What does that mean? Philo often represented God as spirit, which for him means 
not only not of human form, but devoid of human passions. So he's just nothing like us. But I think Lazarus lacks Philo's Hellenistic bent and means that God's nature is spirit rather than flesh. Lazarus is probably expanding on his teaching from earlier when he says in 3.6, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. So there's a contrast here. God, he's saying God's not flesh, he's spirit. And he must be worshipped in the spirit of truth. Now this is very similar to what Paul said in Philippians 3.3. We are the true circumcision as opposed to the Jews who call themselves the circumcision. Because we worship in the spirit of God. And we glory in Christ Yeshua and we put no confidence in the flesh. We're worshiping the spirit, we're not worshiping the flesh. See, God who is spirit is not worshipped by fleshly means. We must be spiritual in order to worship Him. And the only way we can be spiritual is if we're born of the Spirit. On the subject of God is Spirit, one commentator writes this. He is emphasizing the kind of being God is. He is a spirit. He is not material. He does not exist in a body that can be seen or touched, like our bodies. Any physical representation of God, whether by an idol or a picture as a white-haired old man, is a misrepresentation of God. What do you think about that? I think this commentator should spend a little more time reading the Tanakh, all right? Because I don't think he's right. Does God as spirit mean that he's some kind of mist? That he's like a light form without shape? Um, how do we describe it? God is spirit. I, I mean, we take that. I Listen, I have always taken this to mean he doesn't have a body. Because this verse is often compared with Luke 24, 39. See my hands and my feet that as I myself touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So God's a spirit. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. So right away we jump to the fact, well, God doesn't have a body. Many concluded he just doesn't have a body. But listen, Lazarus has told us earlier in the story. I want you to compare these two verses. We just looked at this. God is spirit, right? Look at verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit. What, what is that which is born of the spirit? What's he talking about? Christians, right? That which is born of the spirit. So we could just say Christians are spirit. God is spirit, right? So, that's he's saying the same thing. God is spirit. Christians are spirit. Does that mean we don't have bodies? Uh, I'm pretty sure I have one. Okay, I'm pretty sure you know you have one. All right? Spirits can have bodies. This is our thinking. This is Greek thinking today that spirits are wisps, they're air, they're movement. And the word spirit itself makes us so complicated. You know what the word spirit means? Pneuma? Breath. Wind. Spirit. Ghost. You can translate all these different ways. Alright? Well, you know the Bible says that angels are ministering, what? Spirits. So what does that mean? Do they not have bodies? Do angels have bodies? I used to always teach that angels were incorporeal. I don't know where I got that from. 
I don't know where I got it from. Look at Genesis 19.1. <laughs> now, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. Now, watch this. When Lot saw them, he saw these two wisps, these two light. You know, he, saw, he saw two angels. He rose and met them and bowed down with his face to the ground. What did they see? What did Lot see here? He saw two angels, and guess what? They looked like men, didn't they? They looked so much like men that what happened? The homosexuals wanted to have sex with these men. They were good-looking men. But I think, I think Jude tells us beyond that, they knew they were angels, the men of Sodom. They knew they were angels, and they wanted to have interspecies sex. Is more than just It was more than homosexual. Jude makes that clear, I think. So, angels are spirits, and they always show up as men. I mean, when you see them, that's what you see. And throughout the Tanakh, over and over, men see Yahweh. Look at Ezekiel 1, 26. Ezekiel 1 is a throne room vision. Whenever a prophet, whenever a prophet was called in the prophetic ministry... God would call that prophet into his throne room to meet with a divine council. And so that's what's happening. This is a divine council. This is a throne room scene. And it's crazy when you read it. You're like, whoa. But I'll tell you what's really fascinating about this text. Every description from this text comes from the tabernacle. Okay? Every one of them. So you go back and you'll find all these in the tabernacle. It's very clear. This is a throne. All right? Above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne. All right, so we got a throne here. In appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness with a human appearance. All right, so here's the throne room vision. And what does he see on the throne? He sees a likeness with a human appearance. What's it look like? Well, it looks like a person sitting on the throne. He doesn't say you look like a calf, it looked like a bunch of air, wisp, there's a bright light there on the throne. No, he says it looked like a person. And just in case you're not sure who this is on the throne, drop down two verses. Like the appearance of a bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. So here Ezekiel calls the figure on the throne a likeness of a human appearance, and he connects it with Yahweh. He says in verse 27, it's the likeness with a human appearance, and in these next two verses, it's the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. This is not just some luminous array of light or some kind of mist. This is Yahweh in human form, seated on the throne. Yahweh is the glory, and the glory here has a form. There's a body there. Now, the word likeness here, in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Tanakh, has the same word that's used in Philippians 2. Philippians 2 says, but he emptied himself, speaking of the kenosis of Christ, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness, homoioma, the likeness of a man. Same word. He had the likeness of a human appearance. Homoioma suggests similarity but difference. 
Alright? Christ was in the likeness of men. He looked like a man, but he's different. Why? Because he's a God-man. Well, this thing on the throne looked like a human appearance, but it was different. Why? Because it was God in human form. Now, I stress this, and, and I want to finish this text on the woman of Samaria at the well. And then we're going to come back, and we're just going to focus probably for a day on God as spirit. And I want to get into this in a little more detail, because I want you to see that I'm not making this stuff up. All right? But I stress this. <laughs> I stress this because I mentioned it a while back. My view on the afterlife has changed. And I believe that in the afterlife, we will have a body. And what we see here in Ezekiel is the spiritual body that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. And I'll show you. I'll connect 1 Corinthians 15 with this idea of the deities. All right? And bodily, being in bodily form. We, like Yahweh, I believe at death will have a celestial body. A body that will be totally unlike the body we have now. A body that will do and, you know, beyond your wildest things, okay? <laughs> but this has been promised from Genesis. Now you might ask, well, doesn't the Bible say that no one can see God? It does say that. But what does it mean? Well, you know what I think of? I think of uh, Elijah and his servant. They're all, we're, we're surrounded. And Elijah, don't worry, because those with us are more than those that are against us. What are you talking about? There's nobody on our side. So what happens? He opens his eyes, and he sees the invisible. He sees into the realm of God, because he couldn't see anything. They're invisible. Until the eyes were open. And now he sees into the divine realm, and all of a sudden he sees these chariots and horses, and he's like, whoa, this is crazy. And also, comment on this, no one can see God. Calvin says this. When he says that no one has seen God, it is not to be understood of the outward seeing of the physical eye. He means that since God dwells in inaccessible light, he cannot be known except in Christ, his living image. No man has ever seen God in his essence is the idea. I think that's the meaning of the text here. And so he says God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now the must here is the Greek day. It's the must of divine necessity. The only way anyone can worship the Father is in the spirit of truth. There's no other way to worship. There's no other way. Both in verse 23 and in verse 24, the one preposition, in, governs both nouns. They're not two separate characteristics of worship. It's in the spirit of truth. Listen, people, I know you, it wouldn't give you the material to write a book on, but what he's saying here is you have to worship through Christ. Bottom line, you've got to worship through Yeshua. You can't worship any other way. There's no other way you can come to God. People are trying today to come to God in every way imaginable, but except through Yeshua. You can't do it. He's the only way. So the woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Now the Samaritans anticipated the Messiah's arrival as the Jews did, but they viewed him primarily as a teacher based on Deuteronomy 18. They usually referred to him as Tahab, meaning the restorer or possibly he who returns. Now, he who is called the Christ, Lazarus throws this in here for his Greek-speaking people. She says Messiah, he says, you know, the one called the Christ, just so you do 
to understand what we're talking about here. All right, this is for his Gentile readers. And then in verse 26, Yeshua said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, this is literally, I who speak to you am. There's no he in the text here. All right. This expression is the highest claim that Yeshua can possibly make for himself. It is the claim that he is Yahweh himself. When Moses was at the burning bush and he was told he was going to be the instrumentality through which God is going to lead Israel out of Egypt into the promised land, Moses said, "Uh, who do I tell him? Send me. What's your name? I got to tell him someone. What name do I give him? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus are you say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, I am who I am is Ehiah Asher Ehiah in the Hebrew. And it means I am that which exists. The root of Ehiah is Haya. Haya means to be or I exist. So Elohim tells Moses that his name is Ehiah. But look at the next verse. God further, that's Elohim, further said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. Here's my covenant name, Yahweh. So Elohim again gives his name to Moses, but this time he says it's Yahweh. Now, the two names, Yahweh and Ehiah, are related. Yahweh is and Ehiah is. Ehiah means I exist, I will exist, I am. Yahweh means he exists, he will exist, he is. And both of these names are related to each other. They are both conveying the idea that Yahweh is the existing one, the self-existent one. So the woman says to him, I know the Messiah is coming. Yeshua says, I who speak to you am. He is saying to her, I am Yahweh. I'm the God you don't know, the God you don't understand. He identified himself to this woman as Messiah, the one she had hoped for. Which is interesting because Yeshua didn't reveal himself to the Jews as Messiah. And the reason he didn't do that is because their view of Messiah was a military deliverer. And so he didn't want them to think of him in that light. So he never talked to them in that manner. This is the only time that Yeshua clearly identified himself as the Messiah before his trial. Now, in Mark 9, 41, it records that he used this term of himself on another occasion, but it was indirectly. His self-identification here constituted an invitation for the woman to come to him for salvation. He's saying, I am the one. Now, she's got enough information now, okay? She knows he knows way more about her than anyone could ever know. And she's talking to him about the Messiah, and he says, I'm he. And next week, we're going to come back and pick it up, and we're going to see that she believes this, and she's so excited that she wants to tell a lot of people about this Messiah. And we'll pick it up there next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your grace, Lord, in our lives. And I thank you for your truth, Lord. I pray you'd help us to see, Lord, the simplicity of this text. True worship is only through the Son. Help us to grasp that, Lord. Father, we thank you for the simplicity of it. We love you. Amen. Amen.